Hello plantpreneurs and welcome to series two of the plant-based business podcast brought to you by Feevolution. In this show we explore what it takes to create and scale a plant-based business and I'm your host today Damien Clarkson. Each week on the show we speak to a range of entrepreneurs and investors who are passionate about creating positive plant-powered change in the world. And this week we head to Silicon Valley to speak to a true fashion futurist, David Bresler, co-founder of Bolt Threads. So this hasn't been an overnight success story. As you can imagine, with creating something that is truly changing the world, it takes time. Bolt Threads have been at work for over 11 years on their cutting-edge scientific research to recreate animal levers using nature. Uh, their motto is inspired by nature and designed for our future. And their work is nothing short of revolutionary. And we believe it is set to radically transform the fashion industry. Right now, bolt threads are making the most incredible materials. They're using a type of fungus to create a mushroom lever that is set to replace animal levers at mass scale. In this interview, we talk with David about his background as a scientist before he went into entrepreneurship, how bolt threads replicates nature using science, bolt threads recent collaboration with Stella McCartney and the future of the fashion industry. David is a true pioneer and the work that bolt threads are doing is set to transform the world. Lastly, before we get into today's episode, I would like to thank Robert Bohr, who introduced us to David and runs the Global Visionaries program at Swiss Bank UBS. Global Visionaries are entrepreneurs and thought leaders recognised by UBS for tackling some of the world's largest social and environmental issues. This is in alignment with the 17 Sustainable Development Goals. Learn more about the program at www.ubs.com slash globalvisionaries. Okay, now on to the episode. Enjoy. How you doing, David? Hi, I'm well. How are you? Very good. Yeah. So, first of all, how is sunny San Francisco in the midst of this COVID nineteen outbreak? <laughs> um, it's it's extremely sunny right now, which is you know a little tortured for us in terms of how limited uh, the limited access we have to going outside. But you know, all things considered, um, the city is faring pretty well. Um, cases, you know, continue to rise, but slowly. Um, very, very slowly relative to, say, New York. So, And in terms of the industry and sort of the, obviously, the Silicon Valley tech scene that's there, are people going back to work? What's like your friends? Are they are they working from home? What's the um, vibe like? The tech industry was very, because so many people are just computer based, they got people working from home. I think it's a couple of weeks before there was even a San Francisco wide announcement, let alone a California wide announcement. You know, I have friends who left town because they were on a week of work from home and haven't come back since. Um, so most of my friends are have been locked up since mid February. Locked up meaning just working from home. Yeah. Um, so we've all kind of acclimated, um, but uh, you know, it's it's that's the. St- that's the nature of the jobs in the city. So many are are computer based, but you know there's also a huge restaurant and bar scene that you know is on the verge of being disseminated, mm. uh, and I don't I don't know what the answer is there. So your background is as a bioengineer, mm-hmm. and I'd love to know how you came, became interested in biology and found your way eventually into entrepreneurship. It's a very logical evolving story you know i was i was always an engineer type kid building things taking things apart very scientifically curious you know when my my parents got a computer in the house 
uh, started playing with that and got very into it and was very you know, sort of self-taught computer nerd. There was a point, though, around high school where I there was a convergence of two things. One was I started learning about DNA in, in my molecular biology class, which I just thought was cool because it was very computational in nature. So that was sort of neat and mathematical, which is things I, I, I leaned towards. And I was also starting to get a little frustrated with computers for computer's sake, which is what I originally did. So I, I discovered that there was a field called bioinformatics, which was using computers to study biology, um, biological information, particularly DNA sequences. And I went straight into that. And that launched my, my uh, studies into, into really the applications of computers and engineering and stuff into, towards biology. My, you know, my interest really grew there. And, and at this point, were you, were you thinking, I'm going to graduate from college and go and become an entrepreneur? Or were you looking at other options? Ab- I absolutely was not thinking about that at all. Um, I very quickly knew I wanted to go to graduate school to get a PhD because I enjoyed research so much. I enjoyed studying science, doing science. And I will say sort of the, the ecosystem around the kinds of jobs you could get were less exciting than they are now, where there are all these startups you can go work for. So I wasn't even paying attention to that and it, paying attention to industry. I just thought, I want a research lab. I want to run free. I want to teach. I come from a family of academics, everybody's professor. And so that was the world I knew and the world I really idolized and idealized. And so I went to graduate school to get my PhD so I could do that. It wasn't until I met my co-founders that they were very industry-oriented. And they said, hey, let's start a company together. And at that point, I had nothing to lose. And I liked the guy, so I said, okay, let's do this. I now look back and realize I was very well-suited for entrepreneurship and very well-suited for applied biosciences than just studying science for the, the sake of answering questions about the universe. I just, I learned a lot about myself in the process that I didn't know before. I, I think entrepreneurs actually inherently, most of us have a curious nature. Mm-hmm. And from what you're saying, you're incredibly curious. Mm-hmm. You were just jumping around, wanting to learn everything you could. And so it's a, as we know, it's a constant um, learning curve right. being an entrepreneur. So it kind of makes sense that you fell, I guess, fell into it essentially. And I, I saw, I, I watched a video where you were talking about that period where you were trying to mimic um, spider silk mm-hmm. and and then you, you found your co-founders. And so what was the idea then when you got together to create bolt threads with them? <laughs> um, I, I laugh because th- looking back now, 10 years later, the youthful hubris or the naivete um, is cute, um, it, but it was necessary um, in terms of just how much easier we thought the whole process would be. We, we also didn't realize how great of an impact we could have back then. But the process was um, essentially, I was building in graduate school, I, the, the, at the time I was in graduate school, biomimetics was a very hot topic. Everybody in engineering was talking about what can we learn from nature? Why you? How can we study like you know lotus leaves that are hydrophobic, things like that? All these examples in nature, how can we study them and mimic them 
to make everything up. more aerodynamic cars and planes and, and more hydrodynamic boats and new materials. And spider silk uh, was just, you know, this interesting sort of holy grail of materials, understanding why spider silk was so light and so strong. How did that work? And I started looking into how spiders make silk because I was really into the material science of it. And I happened to be working in a lab that was building microsystems. And so I thought I'd use all my, all my know-how for building tools to build a, or not synthetic, but biomimetic artificial silk gland. Um, because I believe that if we could replicate the system, then maybe we could understand it better. Maybe we could make super strong silk fibers. I got so myopically focused and obsessed on that when I finally took a breath of air and said, aha, you know, I built it, Eureka. I realized I had no way to test it. I built the system to mimic the gland, but I didn't have the protein that the spiders make. Um, and, I, you know, it, it just, it sounds silly at the time, but I had just gone with this assumption that eventually people knew how to make proteins recombinantly. I could just open a catalog and buy one. I just assumed that. Turns out you can't do that for all, all proteins. And silk in particular is a very complex protein. So someone pointed to me, me to a lab across uh, the bay at UC San Francisco, I was at UC Berkeley, where they were working on engineering microbes to secrete spider silk protein. And I said, hey guys, I need, I need your material um, to test, you know, my thesis depends on this. And they said, you know, this is a really challenging problem and we're working hard on it and we don't you know we don't have an answer yet and we kept we just decided to start meeting up every you know every other week every month i think then every other week and we got along and we talked about what was the latest and greatest in spider silk research and then one day after eight months a year of this um they said they took me out to lunch we went to a san francisco sandwich shop well-known ikes and said hey we should start a company and i think i looked at them very confused like we haven't built anything and <laughs> they they walked me through the logic which was we had spent so long figuring out how one would make spider silk at the large spider silk fibers at the large scale from protein all the way through, through to fiber we actually thought we, if you put pen to paper, we actually had an idea as to how to do it um, in a large-scale economical fashion. And we didn't know yet what we would use it for. We had a lot of ideas. And I sort of thought about it. I hemmed and hawed for, I think, all of 20 hours, if even. But I was 26. I had two more years of funding, I think, in graduate school in case it didn't work out and said, okay, let's do it. So we just wrote a bunch of government grants. Worst case scenario was we didn't get the grants and continued in graduate school and saw whatever happened next. Best case scenario, we got the grants and started and we had a hundred percent success rate. We got all the government grants. And oh, wow. so we quickly finished up our theses and, but if that's what it takes, so in those early days, I guess what I'm interested in is who were your kind of customers? Were there customers or was it a case of working on the technology, raising the money and just kind of dry, building the innovation? It was really working on the technology and trying to show customer, customer interest. And we always had 
just enough interest to make to compel investors that there was something here but, it, but it, there was another round but for some reason it never <laughs> it wasn't until um you know again it wasn't really until stella mccartney visited us with all due credit actually to patagonia and i see you're wearing a patagonia shirt they were uh, patagonia was ahead of the curve the outdoor industry is very ahead of the curve yeah. stella changed the game for us in terms of making technology acceptable to luxury making vegan as vegetarian sustainable inspired by nature all those aspects very cool so that opened up a lot of doors and we had a lot more people willing to engage in conversation and we had to spend a lot of time saying you know this is a new innovation this is a biological based innovation um and that has very different economics very different scale up timelines than petrochemistry and spent a lot of time educating people until you know, the time that the timing worked out such that the world was ready for us. Yeah, it'd be great actually to talk a little bit about some of the technologies you've developed, because a lot of people listening to this will be thinking like me, when can I get okay. my silk tie? You know, like <laughs> um, when when is this stuff going to be readily available on, on mass market? So it'd be good to sort of hear a little bit about what you've developed, some of your ones you're really excited about and when we can maybe start to see them come through into kind of mainstream availability right um so we have three main technologies right now um and really underlying all of bolt threads is this vision and mission that we can bring biomaterials um inspired by nature in a much more sustainable way at scale as products and as we we started with our micro silk which was our silk fibers for the apparel industry um we also added um, bee silk, which we discovered along the way that certain, certain of the silks we made, silk proteins we made, had surprising benefits in personal care products, particularly not just in terms of efficacy in ways they could replace synthetic polymers and petrochemical polymers. And that stuff you can actually buy. We have a direct-to-consumer brand you can actually buy at 18b.com. And thirdly, the third... Uh, tier that we added was Milo, which is our mycelium-based leather. And that, I will say, is where we're finding the biggest traction, the most compelling for us life cycle analyses and environmental benefit. Just growing mycelium, which is you know mushroom roots, versus growing a cow, um, the efficiencies are just enormous in terms of benefit to the environment and that's where we're seeing a huge pull and we are on the cusp of launch covid aside that 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 is that is what we're figuring out now but very soon that is we we did launch a, a kickstarter where we were selling just a proof of concept like this is our first generation of milo bags for people who have been following us um so those will launch um but the but the big launches with all the, all the uh, various partners that's coming. I just, yeah. On, on pause. Like on, on, everything's yeah. on pause as the world figures <laughs> out what's going on. <laughs> um, so the mycelium, mm. I guess that's, is that grown in kind of a warehouse lab kind of situation or is it? Yeah. yeah. It's how grown do you, more. In, how do you grow it? It's grown more in a warehouse. It's um shockingly similar to a standard mushroom farm. I don't know if you've mm -hmm. ever 
seen one of those kits you get at school or people use it at home, which is the big block of, you know. Well, I had one actually for Christmas, but um, we've got to get a friend a present for Secret Santa, so I had to give it away to him. But he <laughs> keeps sending me lovely pictures of all, all the mushrooms he's been growing. So yeah, I'm, I'm familiar yeah. with them. So imagine yeah. taking that, you know, it's like sawdust or, you know, various cellulosics, wood chips in a big tray and growing it in a very controlled precise manner that's really the trick Mm -hmm. of the trade it's very fine-tuned control to get the mycelium to grow in a way that makes a material that is leather like but it's otherwise it's very similar instead of mushrooms you're just growing a a foam mat so i guess it's like controlling the moisture and temperature is kind of the key to it yeah exactly and and you mentioned your collaboration with stella mccartney Mm -hmm. and that was a bit of a game changer for you guys and maybe you can tell everyone about that yeah so <laughs> that was funny because i believe how that happened is claire Bergkamp, who's who runs sustainability on on stella's side i think she just cold emailed us to you know like, hello at boltthreads.com and someone noticed you know it was from someone at stella mccartney you know, raised their hand like we've we've gotten an email from from someone at stella mccartney um <laughs> Your listeners can't see it, but I'm, I'm gesticulating. I'm raising my hand, um, and so that. Be, and so then they said they'd love to come visit, and you know, we had no idea what was going to happen. We uh, we spent uh, so much time trying to sort of get the attention of luxury unsuccessfully. Um, you know, some of the feedback we got is people weren't interested in techno silk or techno materials. They were interested in. Luxury was only interested in heritage because that had an origin story, um, you know, a long origin story. Um, And so even though everybody would say, you know, there's a very compelling business model, you should go in luxury, lower volumes, higher margins, et cetera, et cetera. um, I do just the pull wasn't there um, and we couldn't even get in the door. And then Stella came and visited and even in one short visit, she was extremely excited to see the labs. We gave her a tour. She loved everything we talked about. Again, not just from the aspect of all of these things we're trying to make because we've made a number of different materials. They're not all just, you know, vegetarian or vegan. It's all inspired by nature. Everything is a protein that we see in nature or a material we see in nature that we're trying to figure out how to replicate at scale for human uses um, because we think they're better than other materials out there. And she got so excited. She started talking about us to everyone. We started sending her materials. She was playing with them. She, her whole team was willing to, you know, just try and tinker and play. And so we got a lot of great feedback there. And then she made uh, the gold dress with uh you know our our micro silk fibers and that really it was such a just a beautiful piece um that could showcase technology in such an aesthetically appealing and uh inspiring way and so that that really launched um the conversations in uh at a sort of a higher end of of the industry and I guess you were able to dust down the old terminology book about sustainability right. and nature and and people were much more open to that that conversation after after this absolutely and i think at the, I think it was 
the timing as well, as much as Stella made that cool at the same time uh, or and showed it could be beautiful, the luxury apparel industry was starting to feel the pressure or at least understand and recognize that, um, particularly with leather, um, because that is often considered such a staple of luxury goods, that their alternative to animal hide was pleather, now rebranded as vegan leather. And, and I have to remind people, I've, I've learned, you know, this is, I'm 37, but I've learned that at my age, a lot of people I talk to don't know that vegan leather used to just be called pleather. Um, yeah. It's, you know, <laughs> plastic, plastic leather. Um, so the alternative to animal hide was pleather. So if you wanted uh, no dead cows, you got dead dinosaurs. Um, so you know, not to mention all the other chemistries and, and challenges in the supply chain, but just the raw material. And so there was no good in between. And they started saying, OK, how do we how do we find a viable alternative material, given the fact that animal agriculture, livestock has become such a climate change issue versus, say, an uh, animal cruelty issue. I think when it, when you when climate change got put on top of that, you know, cow burps and all of that greenhouse gases, the pressure was enormous because even if you switch to pleather, you are which 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 Stella says herself. <laughs> she's like, you know, it's not great, but it's it's better than than animal leather. So everybody began began looking for a solution. And I guess like I'm super interested in how do we bring stuff to market? You know, I see in the plant based world there's a lot of talk about um cellular agriculture mm. and you know people developing meats in labs and it's very expensive at the moment. It's it's not going to come to market yeah. anytime soon. Like what for the fashion industry, what is going to be the challenge in producing sustain sustainable materials and how how can that be overcome? What can be done to drive the cost down so we can all walk around in sustainable fabrics? Right. You know, one of there there's several challenges there. Um I'd say one is identifying the technologies. I think this is what we spent 10 years learning, identifying the technologies that can really achieve cost parity or cost comparability uh, at large scale. Um, there's not going to be a whole lot of budging in terms of what people are willing to pay. They want, everybody wants to make it work, but they have constraints around their supply chains and margins and expectations there and some pretty legitimate models in terms of if price goes up, we will see this many fewer customers for this product. So it's not just the brands. It's also, um, it's also uh, the consumers. And I say that because, you know, it's one thing to say, we're going to hit the luxury market and we're going to replace all leather and luxury. That is only going to have a limited impact on the environment unless you're replacing all the material across the globe like it's not just it's not just luxury you have to figure out how to scale beyond just luxury but also to athletic wear and all the other day-to-day -day materials that people use um, you might start in luxury the other thing is being you have to be very open to what are the trade-offs you're making um, 
I think as technologists, we often get caught in trying to be perfect, trying to have some ultimate solution with some complex technology, where sometimes you might just have to say, you know, like, okay, well, maybe this is 100x better on greenhouse gas emissions, but it uses the same amount of water. We think we can make a better solution, or maybe it uses a little more water. You have to be willing to, to make those compromises and say, look, if we get that out there, we can solve the, the, the other problem, the water problem secondarily. Otherwise, if you never launch and you try to keep over complexifying the technology, nothing, nothing will ever happen. And, you know, I, I, I hope consumers can um, get comfortable with that. Um, you know, you, I, I see... I see this happen in a lot of materials like, oh, well, that one has a plastic backing. And it's like, well, what is perfect here? What is perfect? You know, I see that with a lot of leather substitutes out there. Um, is it better than leather? You know, or and is that the path we want to be on? You know, to use an example from Impossible Foods, you know, I've been trying their burgers since the beginning. And the first you know, five times I had it over the years, it, it was each time was different. Each time was awful, but <laughs> it was awful in a very textured kind of way. Um, but it consistently got better and better and better. And look where it is now. So, you know, the being first, okay with actually, that journey. Yeah. yeah. As consumers, I think we have to be. I think we, we can't expect perfect overnight and you know as i mentioned to you earlier at Evolution, we do a lot on sustainable fashion and trying to sort of advocate Mm. i guess a more um circular approach to our sort of clothing Mm. system and fashion system what tips do you have for fashion entrepreneurs maybe ones who are like one step further down from you guys Mm. because you're very much in the material innovation side who are looking to kind of get funded and bring products to market because I speak to a lot of investors mm. and very few of them are actually interested in fashion. Right. They're interested in plant-based, cellular agriculture, um, ingredients maybe. They're not so fussed about fashion because the demand for sustainable fashion doesn't seem like a big enough market opportunity. So how do you kind of like, have you got any tips for fashion entrepreneurs out there basically? Yeah, it's, it's fashion in and of itself is a very hard game with venture capitalists. Um, because they, yeah. they want huge growth. But that said, if you have, um, if you can build a compelling brand and they see the growth there, they will get behind it because they don't want to miss out, um, even if it's not a deep technology story. You know, brands have value. And you know, my, my best advice for that is understand the, your mission, the problem you're trying to solve. Are you... Is your goal, like, what does sustainable mean to you? Is that mean you are vegan? Is that because you're concerned about animal, animal rights, animal cruelty, animal using animals for materials or meat? Does that mean your trade-offs are more around what's best for the environment um, in terms of how, how things are used? And and try as best as you can be true to that and build your brand around that because it's there's so much noise in just this is sustainable. And I think people know it's almost a meaningless term at this point if someone says, says this is sustainable. Um, what does that mean? It's sustainable why and how. Um, 
just because, you know, this cellulosic came from eucalyptus and this one came from bamboo, does that mean you should be, you know, touting it? What does that mean? Why is it beneficial? Don't get caught in the noise of just pitching innovation for innovation's sake. Figure out how it aligns to a mission and don't be scared by the initial that in order to uptake some new materials for that cause, it might mean that your margins that you put into your spreadsheet are more squeezed. Don't let that stop you if you can. I think that's fantastic <sighs> advice and really linking that whole story up and not just paying lip service to uh, sustainability. So like I, what I've sort of done a bit of research on you and been looking at your work and I, I think of you as a futurist. You're, you're clearly living 10 years ahead of of most people and I'd love to hear some your thoughts on where do you see the fashion industry going in the next 10 years? You know, it's funny you say that as a futurist. I, I am, but then I also struggle with certain realities of, uh, that I don't feel like I have an answer to. Um, and I'll, I'll give you one specific example um, that I, 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 I worry about or I fret about a lot um, that I have not resolved. Reduce, reuse, recycles. You know, that's, do you guys use that? That's very, I grew up with that ingrained in my head. That's in that order for a reason. You know, reduce your consumption is the most efficient thing you can do for the environment. Reuse the material or the container, as it were, um, is the second most. Recycle, okay, is the third best option. Now, in terms of how we talk now, a fourth would be, you know, reintegrate. I'll choose that to, to stick with the alliteration, reintegrate back into the environment. And so it's, it's very compelling. And I personally believe that we should be making materials that only live for a reasonable human lifespan, 50 years at most, maybe. I should say for apparel. I think, you know, there are plenty of industrial materials that might need to live longer. I'm not going to make a biodegradable spaceship. You know, but um, bridge. Yeah, exactly. Or bridge. That's a better example. Biodegradable bridge. Um, but, you know, 50 years for for clothing or maybe maybe even less. Um, but really the best the best way, uh, the most efficient way uh, for the world is people consume fewer clothes or people just keep reusing, making durable clothes that people reuse. And again, I'll give hat tips to Patagonia for being really wedded to that philosophy that that's that's how they make some environmental trade-offs is this might be this material might not be the best for the environment say for a polyester but relative to how much people would be consuming more if we if we replaced it because there's not a better material this this is what we're going to go with um and then recycle how do you build into uh how do you build up recycling streams and i think Part of the reason I err towards biodegradation and reintegration so heavily is you just see the inefficiencies of our recycling system everywhere. When I was a little kid, I just assumed it was perfectly efficient. If I put it in the box, then it would be reused and to as efficient as society could imagine reusing it. I didn't realize you know, something like for just bottles and cans, only 20% of it are recycled. Now that China doesn't take U.S. Um, unsorted waste, half of it's not more is thrown into a landfill. So I don't know how to solve that recycling problem. And I think that's why I focus 
heavily on ultimately biodegradation because at some point has to has to go somewhere um, if it falls apart. And so that's yeah. that's the aspect of futurism that I that I do struggle with because human behavior relative to material behavior are two very different problems to solve and in, and societal infrastructure around the human behavior too. Yeah, the infrastructure just doesn't mm -hmm. exist in the UK for that kind of um even for decent recycling. Right. There's not even decent recycling infrastructure here. Um and in terms of fashion, where do you see the fashion industry going? What what are we all going to be wearing in 10 years? What yeah. what's my shirt going to be made of? You know, uh, I want to believe and I do believe that in 10 20 years almost all of your i think it's very clear in less than 10 years all of your animal skins for the most part they'll be replaced as fast as companies like ours can scale um yeah and leather will become leather from a cowhide will almost become luxurious in its inaccessibility um but you know there will be a certain amount of hide that exists from just you know, as cows die, this, that, I don't know. I don't know how that industry will, will take shape. Um, but getting out of petrochemistry, getting all on renewable resources, leveraging things like cellulosics more and making more functional fibers, things that, you know, polyester is a shockingly good fiber. It's, it's very high performance and it's dirt cheap. Um, I think there's, there is a future where we can engineer similar performance properties in biological materials, um, whether, it be for, whether it be everything from just the strength of polyester or the moisture wicking, all of that. And so we can start replacing the materials we see now with more comfortable, um, breathable that you just generally find in, in um, biological materials. Uh, but with that same amount of performance, but all being non-petrochemistry uh, based. I, I love the sound of the future. <laughs> I really, I really hope it happens. And then, so at, on this podcast, we do a quick fire round. Mm. So where we ask a few little questions. So just quite briefly, um, as you can answer them. Mm -hmm. um, so firstly, why do you get up in the morning? I get up in the morning to solve the problems of the day. What problems are you trying to solve with bulk threads? getting us out in the world such that we can change the world. What's one resource that has had the biggest impact on your business so far? Ooh, what's one resource? I, I would say the biggest, it's intellectual capital. As, as much as I hate the term, but it's intellectual and creative capital that we've, of the people we've been able to hire. I think that's um, a really interesting mm -hmm. answer. Not one we've had before. What are the top three books or podcasts you recommend to entrepreneurs? Oh, to entrepreneurs specifically. I found Creativity Inc. very inspiring. Um, that's the story of creating Pixar's culture and really emphasizing learning something you're getting into and being open to, um, open to being wrong and change and treating learning like a creative process. God, the funny thing is I, I spend so much time not listening to entrepreneurship podcasts and books because that's what I spend my life doing. <laughs> um, well, some other, other But I will say Stratechery, right? uh, the Exponent okay. podcast. I mean, it's very intellectually deep, borderline academic business analysis, but it's I find it personally 
fascinating because it helps you understand sort of global and industry dynamics um, in a way that speaks to my engineer's mind. I've been recently listening to Wardrobe Crisis a lot. I actually did an interview on it, but it's yeah. it's great to hear how others are thinking about the problem, whether, you know, um, people from Stella, supermodels, how everybody's attacking their problem in their own unique way. Sounds good. So what do you know now that you, you wish you knew when you started Belt Threads? Make the complex simple. Just <laughs> reduce complexity as much as you can. Yeah, <laughs> strip it down. It's always a good yeah. idea. And um, what's the biggest challenge as a business you've had to overcome so far? Sort of waste, lost time. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of interest without pull. You know, a lot of people are sustainable curious or technology techno curious, um, <laughs> and that can suck up a lot of time. Sure. And sussing out who's techno curious versus who's techno paying. Serious. Techno serious. Techno curious. Is techno serious is the. <laughs> And, and lastly, what do you do to keep yourself sane? I, I found for me, one of the number one things um, I do to keep myself sane is running, running alone. You know, my my partner, we do not run together. Um, um, <laughs> and also just finding things to do that are not obsessing about work and the problems. Uh, here's Here's the number one thing, not reading Twitter. Not reading Twitter is, is the number one thing I do currently to keep myself sane. Um, I also play Zelda video games. That's sort of my uh, weird, meditative, happy place. Um, my wife and co-founder, GD, is always talks about Zelda with this nostalgia of like, I want to play Zelda again. That's how what do you play. What, that's, what do you play Zelda on? Well, so that's how it started. Um, exactly that. At one point, I was really at wit's end. And I was like, when did I last, like, when was the last time I had something that I just really just mindlessly got lost in? And I remembered as a kid playing Zelda games. In 64. And I, I got in my car. I drove to Best Buy this years ago. And I bought a Nintendo 3DS. I, I think I still have it right here. But I mean, I hadn't played Zelda in decades. <laughs> and I immediately downloaded it. And then I went just through and I played every single Zelda game from zero to now. And now I, I have a Switch and everything. And I just wait for Zelda. I just wait for some so reason. Nintendo it's like Switch is the one to go for. Well, because Breath of the Wild came out. <laughs> and that one, that I got lost in for a long time. I really don't know what it is about the Zelda games in particular, but... That's sort of, it's a very hypnotic, meditative place for me. <laughs> There's like a certain amount you... of problem solving that feeds that need, but not so much that it becomes too obsessive and then just sort of open mm. exploration. This is perfect for Judy. She, um, <laughs> she's, al she's also an obsessive and um, workaholic. So maybe Zelda's the key for all workaholic, uh, obsessive entrepreneurs. That's, that's honestly, <laughs> no joke. That's, I'm very happy I did that. Okay, you motivate me to get Zelda. <laughs> That's it, really. I, if people want to follow your journey and follow Bolt, Bolt Threads, I'm sure they do. Where can they find you and connect with you? Um, Bolt Threads obviously has its social media yeah. at Bolt Threads on everything. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me talking about sustainable materials, poking fun at Dan, um, Dan, my co-founder, um, at David N. Breslar, and is my middle name Nate. That's great. Look, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. And, uh, and thanks for 
over a decade's work, you know, Thank in changing you. the world. And you, and you really are. You're saving the lives of animals. You're helping us tackle the climate crisis. So a massive thank you from us and Feevolution. And, um, may long it continue. Yes. May long continue. And we'll get you in person at one of our events when we can finally meet up again in the real world. I so look forward. Be a pleasure. And thanks to everyone who is listening. And thanks for having me. Hi, plantpreneurs. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Plant-Based Business Podcast. It was produced by Feevolution, and this series is hosted by myself, Damien Clarkson, and my co-host, Judy Nadell. Before we go today, I have a quick favour to ask. At Feevolution, we believe in the power of business to positively impact the planet. This is why we created the podcast, to help accelerate the good work you're all doing in making the world a better place. But we need your support to keep this community going. We've created a new plant-based business community over on Patreon. For just a few pounds a month, you can support the show and growing and helping us to shine a light on the plant-based businesses changing the world. So please head on over to www.patreon.com slash plant-based business and show your support for this podcast and the free content we create. Also, please remember to share this episode in your favorite social network. I can't tell you how much things like reviews and social shares help us and ambitions to tell the world about the growth of the plant-powered business movement. You can find us on Instagram at plantbasedbusiness underscore and at feevolution underscore. Okay, keep safe and we'll see you all again soon.